Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller, my co-host. We have three topics for you today. The first topic is uh, a survey or a couple of surveys that I ran over the last couple of weeks about music consumption habits and about Apple Music in particular. Um, They're connected to a report that I'm publishing hopefully this week um, on that subject. And so we'll be talking through some of the findings from those surveys, some of what I learned And also some of the context for why I wanted to run those surveys in the first place, which was really about trying to either confirm or disprove some hunches that I had. Um, Our second topic will be our question of the week. And Aaron has been doing the research for this one this week. And the question is, uh, was Elon Musk right that Apple can't just ask Foxconn to make a car? And if you're not aware of the context there, uh, these are some comments that Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, made this week. Um, fairly derogatory comments about Apple's efforts in this space. And um, in the context of that, he suggested that you know building cars is basically a very different proposition from building phones. And so Aaron's been doing some research this week about quite how different they are and, and what that might imply about whether Elon Musk was correct or whether he was uh, being a bit misleading in those comments. Our third topic will be... Um, at a specific level, talking about the new version of the Overcast podcast app for iOS and the new business model that it employs and some of the criticism that that has engendered. Uh, but more broadly, we'll be talking about iOS app business models and how they're evolving and, and perhaps what Apple might do to help those developers out a bit. And then we'll wrap up, as usual, with our weekly pick. So with our first topic, um, Apple Music and music consumption in general, um, some quick background here. I wrote a piece back in April of this year on the TechPinion site called uh, Reinventing My Music. And it was really about um, the version of the music app that was in um, betas of iOS 8 at the time and that it seemed to prioritize a tab called My Music and and, what that might suggest about the kind of music service that Apple might launch in the summer. And of course that ended up being Apple Music and the My Music component is and and that concept is, is a big element of that. Uh, But the point here is that as part of that piece, I talked about if Apple launched the service they thought they would, which they did, um, what kind of people would it be able to attract? And I I had several sort of ideas in there. And one was it would probably attract older people uh, because older people have always been the bigger payers, if not the biggest listeners to music. Um, So Apple Music listeners would skew older than the average um, another one that was that people who owned their own music and liked to integrate that within their music listening experience would um, skew higher towards Apple Music. And then that discovery would also be an important feature and therefore that people who prioritize discovery would gravitate towards Apple Music in larger numbers as well. So those were all predictions I made back in April and wanted to test now that we're getting through the first three months of the Apple Music uh, availability. The other thing was I was seeing a lot of people on Twitter suggesting kind of that they were either yes, signing up for Apple Music after the free trial ended or cancelling for various reasons. And three of the biggest reasons were they were going back to Spotify. Um, they'd never seen the point in paying for a music service and were just going back to non-consumption, essentially. Or there was some major feature missing, um, like Sonos integration, for example, that they were going to hold off until that was available. So I wanted to kind of see if those you know, anecdotes that I was hearing on Twitter were representative or not. And so I ran a couple of surveys. Um, when the report comes out, hopefully in the next couple of days, um, that'll have the full methodology in it that you can see. But there were two surveys. One was one that I drove people to myself um, using the Qualtrics survey platform. Um, not terribly representative, definitely skews very heavily towards a tech audience and, and people who are favorable towards Apple. So some of the numbers have to be taken with a pinch of salt, but the trends are still interesting. And then a slightly bigger survey with 500 respondents um, that I ran through an app called Micro Hero, which allows people to take surveys and then get rewarded by payments to their favorite charities. Um, so those are the two surveys that I ran. And the, the, uh, the findings were interesting. So um, on the age side, um, there was an interesting dichotomy because um, younger people trialed Apple Music in higher numbers than older people. So you might say, oh, well, that kind of flies in the face of your uh, original conjecture. But um, obviously, you know, younger people are generally bigger music listeners, more aware of the latest stuff and so on. And so it wasn't altogether surprising that younger people trialed it in higher numbers than older people. What was interesting was that when it came to converting those free trials into paying customers, um, the older people skewed higher. So there's significantly higher rate of older people in both these surveys um, that switched from being free trial users to paying users than younger people. Younger people tended to cancel in far higher numbers uh, than the older people that I surveyed. So that one sort of finding was borne out, even though there was this interesting sort of difference between people who trialed the service and people who ended up paying for it. 
Um, you know, that doesn't surprise me at all, simply also because I think younger people are going to be more tuned into Apple's marketing efforts. Yeah. I, I mean, not just that, not just in their approach to music generally, but uh, I, I think they're just going to know more of what's happening as far as Apple and music is concerned. Mm-hmm. And then the other thought is, you know, younger people are cheaper. Right. <laughs> yeah. So absolutely. if they can get something free for three months, yeah, why not? So. Yeah, and there's, I think there's an interesting thing here too where, um, you know, younger people are growing up with the internet, as it were, and um, with that, growing up with ad-based business models and are much more tolerant of advertising in general and, and probably have less disposable income as well in most cases. And so um, all of those things together mean they're much more tolerant of ads in, you know, videos and music and, and that kind of thing and therefore drawn to things like YouTube and Spotify in their free versions um, rather than paying for music and video and that kind of thing. And so, um, you know, to my mind, again, it's not surprising that they would sign up in much lower numbers. You know, older users have always been bigger payers for music. They have more money. Um, they're perhaps more choosy in what they listen to and more willing to pay for it simply because they have less time for discovery and that kind of thing. That Their music listening time is probably less and therefore they need to make sure they're going to hear exactly what they want to hear rather than sort of messing around and experimenting with things. So... Not altogether surprising. Um, no, but I do the- think this is potentially evidence that Apple has the wrong price point. And when I say Apple, really, I'm talking about the music industry. I, in fact, I remember when Apple, back before Apple Music was announced, there were rumors that Apple was pushing for a price point around $7 a month or $8 mm-hmm. a month. Yeah. But the music industry wouldn't have it, um, you know, in part because once they hand over a price like that to Apple... You know, it's like the 99 cent song price that held mm-hmm. on for so many years and that Apple was right. able to 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 enforce on the music industry. But I, but I think $10 a month is too much for, for a lot of the uh, potential market out there. Yeah, it's challenging because it's basically an album a month. Um, and that's the way Apple's positioned it too. You know, Eddie Q and someone in talking about it have kind of talked about it that way, you know. But how many people actually buy an album a month? Um, you know, you might buy half a dozen a year or something like that. But if you do, then you're going to be paying more using a service like this. And, you know, I'm very much in the camp of, you know, um, somebody who's willing to pay for the privilege of listening to whatever I want to and, and, and making sure I can listen to exactly what I want to at any given point in time while, you know, yes, discovering some new stuff along the way as well. So I'm somebody who has signed up for Apple Music, but that's because it's kind of, it's worth it to me. The hassle and so on is worth it to me just to pay the money and be able to listen to whatever I want to without having to be interrupted by ads and so on. Um, but I know there are many others that, that make that trade off differently. Um, I think the fact, I, I wonder to what extent a $5 price point would change that behavior. It's funny that, I mean, the truth is calling it an album a month or making that comparison already separates the younger customers from the older ones. Mm-hmm. Because, um, I mean, you know, how many younger people actually buy albums? I mean, right. buy the album versus, right. buy, you know, just as mm-hmm. individual songs. So. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, it's it's funny, single sales continue to be significant, but all the money for the music industry is in album sales traditionally. And so it's an interesting transition the industry is going through at the moment where, you know, we are seeing this shift in what people are paying for. And of course, with streaming now becoming the dominant form. And it was very clear, actually, and one of the first questions I asked was, which formats do you listen to? And streaming was dominant. Um, and digital owned music was kind of the second biggest. And then there were various other things like physical media for a sort of subset and then radio and things like that. Uh, but streaming is becoming dominant. And one of the other things that became clear was that it's free streaming that's dominant. You know, I asked about different services and whether people used paid or free versions of those services. And, um, you know, for everything except for Spotify, the the free version was absolutely dominant. For things like YouTube, it was 100%, even though there is technically a paid version now of YouTube music. Um, but for Spotify, it was the only one with a significant subset of customers that were paying for it. But even there, it was a minority. And, and we know that from their public figures, too. The reality is the vast majority of music streaming is, is used for free. And that generates far less revenue than the paid stuff, even though there's less, far fewer users on the paid stuff. It actually generates a significant proportion of the total streaming music revenue just because, you know, the, the payouts on ad-based streaming are far lower than paid streaming which is one reason why the music industry has been so willing to go along with Apple Music here and, and try to help to promote it. 
Yeah, but they can't. I mean, as long as Spotify can keep the ad-based streaming afloat. I mean, I have a hard time understanding how Apple's going to be able to kill that. Um, yeah, not by people, themselves, certainly. Right, because people are always going to be drawn. And I know that's kind of one of their goals. But, uh, yeah, this is one of those things where I'm not sure Apple has the power to get people to turn away from. I mean, it needs to be a value proposition mm-hmm. that is compelling. It's yeah. not unlike the case that they made back when they announced iTunes and iPods, you know, and sort of said, look, we want to, we want to have an iTunes store that is a compelling alternative to pirating. Right. right. They recognize that they can't, they can't get people to, to switch based on sort of moral arguments of what artists deserve. Mm-hmm. They had to get people to switch based on the value proposition being better than searching through pirated sites and right. for music. And, and it's going to have to be that to get people away from free streaming. Right. It's going to need the same compelling value proposition rather than sort of a moral argument about what artists deserve. That, you know, the truth is all the same arguments that are brought out against free streaming are the same arguments brought out against piracy, you know, a decade ago. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. More friendly to the artist. The problem is philosophical objections drive very few uh, buying choices from consumers. There, there may be a subset that buys on that basis, but it's a very small probably. One interesting thing from the survey, too, is, you know, I mentioned discovery and what I said up front about, you know, my April sort of predictions. And um, that that was confirmed by the survey that people that prioritize discovery actually skewed quite a bit higher in terms of their likeliness to um, move to paying customers rather than canceling at the end of the free trial. So it was about the same numbers as the older age group. Um, you know, so, you know, I think it was about two thirds to one third among that age group that were paying versus canceling versus the average was about 50 50 and younger users were sort of two thirds, one third the other way. So um the exact numbers aren't what's important here, but it was the sort of pattern that people that prioritized discovery in both services skewed quite a bit higher on their likeliness to have become paying customers. So it's good validation that at least some of the features that Apple has been prioritizing are capturing people's attention and, and delivering on the promise, I guess. So that was good. Um, one other thing was that uh, the owned music thing that I had conjectured in April would be a big part of it, is a big part of the service, but it doesn't seem to be driving a lot of... Uh, behavior in terms of people who prioritize being able to listen to their own music don't seem to be skewing any higher on paying for apple music than than the average and the the group as a whole um the other the other interesting thing was that uh, i asked about you know these features that people care about in music services in general before i got down to apple music specifically and i had a whole range of things ease of use was one of them be able to create playlists was one um you know finding music already know i like was one discovering new music was one um, you know, playing the music I already own was one, and then sharing music and playlists with friends and family was one, and that was one I expected to come out quite high, given how much Spotify talks about that feature and how much Spotify users talk about it. But it actually was by far the lowest of all those features um, in terms of people's rankings. It, it was the the one that by far was last on those list of features for people, and, and the one that was by far the least in terms of being the first priority for people. Um, that really surprised me. Um, there's a slightly higher rate for younger users, but not that much higher. Still about 10, 10% of users saying it was their most important feature. Um, and that declines down to sort of 5% for older users. So um, I was surprised that, you know, given how much Spotify prioritizes that and promotes it, it's not that important to most people. And that's probably good for Apple Music too, and that Apple Music's sharing features haven't been that great. And that's been something that's been criticized for. But when you understand that that doesn't seem to be something that many users prioritize, maybe that's not that important. Yeah, and I wonder how much of that is a, is a chicken and egg problem. It, you know, I wonder how much of it is just that people would be more willing to share if they had the right features, or if it's just, maybe, or maybe that's a bad perspective and it's just something people are never really going to care about very much. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, I don't know if it's, it may be, I think with some of these features, it's hard. And this is where, you know, focus groups and things like that can be better for some kinds of research because you really understand what's behind people's rating of these things. But I wonder to some extent if it's just, well, every service has some form of sharing and therefore that's not a higher priority for me in deciding between the services. Um, you know, it's all going to do it somehow. Um, but I suspect, you know, given quite how low this was rated, I suspect it's just most people, they're not sharing. They're mostly picking music services based on their own listening experience rather than their ability to share that stuff with other people. Yeah, I, it's, um, there are all kinds of interesting problems with, with sharing. 
because you have to have the right vehicle. Is it a playlist that you share? Is it a song that you share? Where do you share it? I mean, we can't have, you know, Apple's not going to go after a ping redux, right? Right. And trying Mm -hmm. to create a separate social network. So that's the problem with sharing. I think also an interesting phenomenon with music is everybody has guilty pleasures that they don't want everyone to know <laughs> about. Right, yeah. And that's been a problem with Spotify where for a while the default settings shared a lot about what you were listening to. Yeah. And so, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean I'm mean, i just considering that last week my brother sent out a text to a couple of us uh, siblings, you know, saying, hey, you all need to listen to so-and-so. And... Um, how did he share it? What was he actually, just, was he just saying artist I, name I, and album yeah, or whatever? Yeah, iMessage. Right. I mean, it was just right. an iMessage saying, hey, yeah. I, you know, there was no, he didn't use any sharing feature anywhere. Okay, so it wasn't a link or anything. It was no, just find find this it, artist on your music service of choice. Yep, yeah, yeah. Right. And uh, and I don't know, like I'm curious how much music sharing could happen if there really was a well-designed sharing feature or service. Because it doesn't yeah, seem was, like anybody has it right. I mean, yeah, there sh- was an app. Go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say there was an app. I think The Loop wrote about this app. Somebody else wrote about it and they linked to it. Um, loopinsight.com um, linked to it. And it was, I'm trying to remember what the name of it was. Soundshare, I think, was the name of it. But I'll look it up and put it in the show notes. But um, it was um, an app that was basically all about, you know, I create play- playlists and you can instantly see them. So that, you know, if we're having a conversation over IM or whatever, I think they were talking about using Skype. You know, you can instantly see what I'm adding to it and then you can play it at your end and so on. And they were basically saying, wouldn't it be great if Apple Music did this too? And that kind of sharing I can see being quite useful where it's sort of this instantaneous, you know, this is why I'm listening to you, listen to it too or whatever. Um, I think that could be interesting too. But all of this stuff depends to a great extent, especially in a paid service, on the person at the other end also having access to that service. And when, you know, Apple Music has, you know, well under 100 million users and it was 11 million the last they they gave a number for trialists even um you know the chances are the person at the other end doesn't use apple music or at least doesn't pay for it and so um sharing gets really challenging if the person at the other end has no way to actually listen to the stuff but it could be simplified and i think this shows how awkward the divide is between the itunes music store and apple music as a service because for example if there was a mechanism by which you could push out hey i'm listening to this song everybody else should too it, it ought to have one link, right? And if I'm not an Apple Music subscriber, it takes me to the opportunity to preview and buy the song. And if I am an Apple Music subscriber, it just plays the song. Mm-hmm. But these are these services have this sort of weird chasm between them that seems unnecessary. Right. I mean, I'm sure it's not technically easy to integrate right. this no, it isn't. with Apple But Music, you do but feel that way, even as an Apple Music subscriber, when you're using right. it, you feel like there is a strange sort of, oh, now I've got to transition to the iTunes store. It's like, well, shouldn't it all just be Apple Music? You know, right. and it should be a buy button by the stuff that's not available in Apple Music. And I shouldn't have to shift to this whole different modality to be able to buy music if I actually need to do that. No, that's exactly right. It's a really strange divide. And I think, mm. it, I think it makes things worse for Apple, not better. Right, right. Okay, well, let's wrap up on that music topic and move on to our question of the week. So as I said at the beginning, the question here is, and it's a slightly flippant question, but it gets at the heart of the the issue here, which is, was Elon Musk right that Apple can't just ask Foxconn to make a car? So Aaron, do you want to first of all give us the background to that question? What was the context in which he was making those remarks and what was his point? Sure. So he was giving an interview for a German business newspaper um, and you know, Elon Musk is never one to really worry about biting his tongue. Um, the interviewer asked about Apple, especially in particular the fact that Apple had hired away a bunch of Tesla engineers. He sort of dismissed that saying, look, these are people we fired or that couldn't cut it at Tesla, which was already controversial as it was. But then he had to throw in this idea that that uh, Apple's going to find building a car much harder than than they think, which is a funny thing to say, because how does he know what Apple's thinking about right. building a car? Mm-hmm. But, you know, his point was, is he said, look, have you ever taken a look at the Apple Watch? And he says, I mean, it's a cool thing, but it's nothing close to the complexity of building a car. And, and, and smartphones, iPads, even computers, his point is, these are far less complex than building cars. Um he did acknowledge that it makes sense for Apple to move into this space because Apple likes to come into markets where there's an opportunity for huge innovation. He had saw this years ago, and that's what Tesla's about. Um, but anyway, he, he's just kind of being dismissive of that. Because if Apple enters the market, it, everybody in the market kind of freaks out, or should. But then there's always a handful of people that are 
kind of remembered forever as saying, oh, they can't just come in and do this, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's everybody's wondering if this is another one of those moments. Right. But but I thought it'd be interesting to get into this question. I mean, mm-hmm. it, you know, could can Apple build a car by just asking Foxconn to put it together for them? <laughs> right, right. Uh, the, the, the funny part is, is his question essentially sets up a straw man. And so to really answer the question, we have to get rid of that. I think if Apple builds a car, they're not just going to Foxconn and saying, hey, right. make a car for us. Well, by definition, yeah. I mean, Foxconn doesn't even make cars, right? So it would have to be, at the very least, some equivalent to Foxconn, which doesn't right. exist for the most part. But so, so what did you learn in terms of sort of the design and manufacturing process for, for cars versus smartphones? How are they similar and how are they different? Well, and, th- and that's the first place we have to start because this is, I think, where there's the most misconception about Apple and Tesla and the products they make. I think there's a, there's a perception that Tesla is doing everything custom is doing everything on its own and basically building these cars from scratch. And then on the other end, there's a perception that Apple just sort of outsources everything and does a lot of stuff off the shelf and uh, doesn't really make any of its own products. And, and this is a pretty, if it, were that, if it were that way, there would be a lot of reason to think, yeah, Apple can't do what Tesla's doing. But the truth of the matter is they're much more similar and the way they approach design and manufacturing. And it's important to talk about design and manufacturing together because both of these companies see these processes as integrated. Mm -hmm. You don't design something and then go to a manufacturer and say, okay, make this. What actually happens with both Tesla and Apple is they do pretty intensive design surrounding the manufacturing process to get the product that they want. Mm. Um, Using Apple as an example, if you consider this like the unibody a manufacturing process that they pioneered with laptops and then moved into all their other products. Um, this unibody manufacturing process was an Apple innovation, but they don't actually do it. Like they don't own facilities that do unibody manufacturing with the exception of the Mac Pro, which we'll talk about a little bit later. The truth is what they do is they, they, they sort of say to the manufacturers, we need this kind of equipment undertaking this kind of a process that we've designed they license that to the manufacturers so they can use that process and so it's not just unibodies it's also the a-series chip which we talked about you know apple designs that thing from top to bottom and then they outsource the manufacturing of it Um, the same could be said for batteries when the mac when the new macbook came out apple made a big deal out of the layered tiered battery design Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a process that Apple was pioneering in partnership with its manufacturing partners. And so, right, so they're not just designing the product, they're designing the manufacturing process and everything else as well. Exactly. And it's also true for Gorilla Glass. Um, Gorilla Glass was designed in partnership with Apple. And Corning gets to hold on to all the IP in that relationship. But they're sort of working with Apple as they design this stuff. And so, mm-hmm. so, there's, so the idea that you know Apple's doing stuff off the shelf... Um, just sort of outsourcing everything is a misconception because it doesn't really contemplate the fact that for Apple, design and manufacturing are all part of one large process rather than separate processes. And Tesla, on the other hand, gives the impression that they manufacture everything from scratch, but they don't. Um, In fact, from what I was able to dig up, it looks like Tesla actually, um, they source around 2,000 parts for their cars from from 200 third-party providers so these are all oems that are feeding into the tesla supply you know coming out of the tesla supply chain and i mean it's in fact i found this really great thing from autonews.com a pdf showing all the different parts that come from where they identify the companies and so so the exterior mirrors are produced by a company called adac the brake pedal switch is method electronics the interior auto-dimming mirror is made by Gentex. Um, the antenna system is made by Harada. I mean, you get the idea. Like, these are all companies making parts that Tesla is, 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 is ordering, bringing into their assembly facilities and then putting together. And, and so, the, so Tesla, it turns out, has plenty of off-the-shelf um, uh, requirements. Uh, in fact, parts that they're, that they're using in their supply chain. Uh, and, in fact, almost in a way that makes me feel like they're probably doing it more than Apple. Apple does very little that we could truly call off the shelf in the sense that they're sourcing parts that other people are also using. Apple tends to custom order stuff a lot more than other manufacturers in electronics. And so 
The truth is Tesla and Apple are very similar in this regard. Um, they're both... Um, they're both very interested in the design process, but they're also relying on third-party manufacturers to provide them with a, a, a bunch of the parts involved with uh, mm-hmm. with the products that they're making. Right. So you've got the design, you've got the manufacturing. At some point, all this has to come together, right? So you've got this assembly process as well. Is that similar to the, for the two companies, or is that where things start to diverge a bit more? This is where the big difference is, and I think this is where Elon Musk's statement wasn't so much of a straw man, because he's right. You can't just show up to Foxconn and say, hey, make me a car. Tesla, and Musk is saying this because Tesla has its own assembly facility in California that produces Model S cars. In fact, there's a really cool video that, that we'll link to that provo- that shows that process. Wired was the one that produced it, and it's highly automated, lots of robots. Um, and it shows that they actually do a fair amount of I mean, although this is really an assembly plant, they do a fair amount of actual manufacturing. I mean, the 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 brazing, for example, and the of the car panels is made out of aluminum, and they actually take coils of aluminum and shape them into the parts in this facility. Um, is where they do all the painting and other assembly. But all this happens in the United States with American workers, and uh, essentially, there is not a car until it comes out of a te- a Tesla owned facility Um, and that's not true for apple for everything except for really one product which is the mac Mm -hmm. pro i mean but i think this is the reason for the difference apple needs tens of millions of its devices on really short order Mm -hmm. i mean it it had to sell 10 million it just sold you know over 10 million iphones in just a few weeks it had to actually get these products into people's hands and the thing about foxconn and other manufacturers and assemblers uh, like Foxconn is that uh, they have access to labor pools that allow or they provide the ability to produce this many units on such short notice. Right. So it's not just about the fact that Chinese labor is cheaper, but it's just this massive labor pool that you can tap into and produce things on scale that you can't do in the same way with you know quickly ramping up and so on back in the u.s right and i I have a friend who runs a company in in china that provides benefits that they essentially are an hr benefits provider for manufacturing facilities in china so the idea is kind of providing benefits to to factory workers and uh you know when there's a new i mean people are constantly moving around and you're talking about hundreds of thousands of workers shifting and flowing continually across all these different manufacturers. I mean, the reason Apple has to be in China producing phones is because they need as many phones as they need to keep customers happy, and you have to produce in a place where there's a labor supply to do that. I I don't think that's going to be the situation with cars. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it was last year, globally, there's a total of 89 million cars produced. And, uh, you know, Apple's iPhone sales alone, not including the smartphone category, right? Right, <laughs> but Apple's right. iPhone well, a couple sales of courses, alone, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, are on par with that. And so, <clears throat> so Apple's clearly, the, car, the market for vehicles just doesn't have the same volume. And so I think the idea is that to think that Apple's going to produce a car through a Foxconn is looking at it the wrong way. And we have a much better analogy for how Apple's going to produce the car with its Mac Pro facility. And so a couple of years ago when Apple announced the Mac Pro, <clears throat> they kind of made a big deal out of the fact that it was produced in the United States. They do all the assembly here, and even some of the parts are originally sourced from the United States. And so, uh, the, and, and in fact, if you watch, Apple put out a video on how the Mac Pro was made. And if you watch that video and compare it to the video that Tesla put out through Wired, uh, there are quite a few similarities, and I won't be surprised if Apple ends up producing the car in the U.S. I mean, we still make a lot of cars in the United States, mm-hmm. and and I think uh, and, and we've got the 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 capacity here to make cars in the United States, right? It, as far as like the number of employees you need and so forth. Plus, these are highly automated processes. You're going to have a lot of robots um, doing a lot of the work. And so I won't be surprised if Apple cars are made in the U.S. In a way that's very similar to the way Tesla's making them, <clears throat> and none of what there's nothing Tesla's doing that isn't that isn't available to Apple just because Apple has so much cash on hand right, to right. invest in stuff like this. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, the other thing, I guess, with cars is, you know, and if it's an expensive enough car, I guess that doesn't make a huge amount of difference, but just the sheer logistics of getting a car from point of manufacture to point of sale, you know, for phones, you can load up a jumbo jet with, you know, thousands and thousands of iPhones, you know, with cars, you have to ship them and, um, you know, much larger, heavier objects, obviously, that, that are much harder to get from point A to point B. And so, there's an argument to be made for making them closer to the point where actually going to be sold as well, import taxes and all that kind of stuff too. But, um, you know, there's, there's, I guess, an argument there for, for making them a bit closer. And if it's possible because, you know, labor pools and automation and everything else, then it makes more sense there too. It is going to be a different supply chain experience for Apple though. I mean, the Mac Pro doesn't sell that many units. It's an expensive right. computer for a targeted market. Mm-hmm. And Apple's going to be doing a lot more importing of parts and getting parts on demand where, you know, to the right place in the right time. Most of that for Apple happens globally, and now a bunch of that's going to be happening domestically. And that'll be an interesting change. I don't think it'll mm-hmm. be a fatal one. I don't think it'll make – I mean, there are plenty of other car manufacturers that do this now. So I don't think it's going to be hard for Apple. But one thing that's really cool about Apple uh, in their manufacturing prowess – Right is how well they manage their supply chain. They are they're known for being best in show in that regard. I mean, they they do it better mm-hmm. than pre- pretty much anybody else in on the planet, and uh, that's an efficiency that I think is going to serve them well in automobiles. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and then I mean, I guess once you've built the car, then you have the process doesn't end there. I mean, are there are there unique challenges that Apple's going to face kind of once they've built a car too that, you know, Tesla's got an edge on them with? Yeah. Um, in the same way that Apple built up an iPod ecosystem that helped it make the iPod the dominant music player, um, automobiles generally as a category have a massive ecosystem built up around them. Um, and the challenge of making an electric car is that this ecosystem is really underdeveloped because you have to charge a car instead of fill it up with gas. Um, this is why Tesla has pushed and made a big deal out of its supercharger network um, because rather than waiting for, you know, like, like uh, I don't know, Chevron, right, to start installing EV uh, charging stations and all of its gas stations, um, Tesla just sort of said, hey, let's just put out a charging network. Um, I think, uh, I don't think Apple's going to take that approach. I don't think they're going to do their own charging network. Um, I think they're, they're, they're pretty good at partnership. And I won't be surprised if you see them go after some of the major, um, some of the major fuel suppliers and convince them to put in charging stations at all the gas stations. I mean, what's really cool about the transition we're going to have from gas cars to electric cars is that uh, gas stations already exist and they're all over the country. And as long as we can get charging the charging process to be fast enough, which is coming, um, then we're going to have uh, then we're like all these facilities for charging your car already exist. There will, in fact, be a lot less of them because people can fuel their car at home by plugging it in. Right. But, uh, but uh, there still need to be chargers out in the wild and not just in people's houses. Mm-hmm. And that is a hurdle that Apple's going to have to overcome where Tesla has an advantage. But I don't think it'll take very long for Apple to overcome that, in part because there are other companies that are going to be producing electric cars as well. Everybody seems to be coalescing around a charging standard right now, which should hold up. Uh, I'm sure Apple will actually want to make some pretty big contributions to the standard there. They like doing that as well, you know, doing innovations and then adding it to a standard if it helps them sell their product. They did that with, right. uh, I don't know, in the computer side, like USB-C is the mm-hmm. most recent one mm-hmm. where Apple made some technical contributions. And so yeah. so I, 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 think, uh, I think that's one thing. The other sort of problem that Apple has when it comes to the ecosystem of cars is with dealerships. And this, and this is actually a problem that Tesla has currently. And there are a bunch of states that have laws banning the uh, manufacturers from selling cars directly to consumers. And this is, these are an old set of laws from decades ago, back when automobile manufacturers had a, had a bunch of market power over dealerships in a way that, that was really imbalanced. And so state governments stepped in and said, look, you know, you can't, if you're a manufacturer, you can't sell a car directly. And the purpose was, at the time, it was consumer-friendly um, because it allowed for more competition through dealerships. That has changed a lot over the years. 
and Tesla has actually had legal fights in multiple states where it's tried to sell its own cars directly, and dealerships are now lobbying basically to uphold and keep these laws in place, and have even gotten some states to enact new laws adding protections to dealerships. Um, I have a hard time imagining Apple wanting to go through dealerships. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, you know, the shift for them to the Apple Store model I think pretty much sealed the deal for them that they do better if they sell their own products rather than ask somebody else to sell them. And that being the case, it's going to be an interesting legal fight because Apple is mm. not a lobbying co- company. I mean, they, they, their lobbying expenses are tiny compared to other tech companies. And and this is going to take a lobbying effort. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see that play out. And it'll be one where Tesla is actually going to benefit from Apple. I mean, there are a bunch of ways that Tesla will benefit from Apple entering the car market, but this is going to be one of them. In that hopefully, you know, you know, five years from now, Apple will have its own stores where you can buy a car and Tesla right. will too. And that'll be yeah. true in every state. Yeah, okay. Well, great. Any, any last thoughts on all of this? Anything that we haven't kind of covered yet? Just kind of one side thought. And this has nothing to do with answering Elon Musk's question. I mean, because I think the answer, if I summed it up, is, of course, Apple can do this. I mean, they have Tesla and Apple are a lot more similar than they are dissimilar. And Apple has this huge amount of cash to, to ramp up to make something like this happen. I mean, they've already authorized a team of a thousand people to work on the Apple car. And based on, you know, some latest reports, they've already hired something around 400 people. I mean, that's, that's a huge commitment financially, and Apple has the capacity to do it. So I think all this is available. I think what the side thought that I think is really curious and interesting is how intensely Apple designs every element of its products. The new Magic Mouse that just came out, um, <laughs> there was that article, right, describing the design process that went into this. Yeah. And, uh, and it was funny because it's sort of obsessed about the feet, the plastic feet of the mouse, mm. and how mm. they created a different sound when you clicked right. on the mouse, then the old mouse had. And they had to design new feet so they could get the right clicking sound. I mean, this is obsessive, obsessive design. And what I find so curious about Apple making a car is that the number of parts that need designing, the number of elements that need designing, increased by two orders of magnitude. I mean, there's so many more parts in a car than there right. are in a phone or in a laptop or in an both, iPad. Both or both working ones and just decorative and yeah, functional ones. Yeah, exactly. Also. And... And I am just imagining Johnny Ive sitting on top of this, this huge design project. Mm. And I'm curious how it's working. I, I mean, because yeah. the other impression you get is that Johnny Ive has sort of always been the final arbiter of, of design choices. And, and that he's very involved in the design process of all these products. There's so much going on in a car design-wise, both interior and exterior to a car. That I I just don't know how a single human being could have the bandwidth to be as involved as he's been historically. Mm-hmm. So right. So this That'll is be interesting to watch. Yeah. So this is going to be interesting to see when it comes out. Tesla when it first started coming out the Model S, there were a lot of people who said, yeah, the electric thing is really cool, but Teslas just don't have the same fit and finish as like a BMW or a Mercedes. Right. In fact, this is still a complaint people have about the Tesla because of mm. its price category. It's competing against cars that like have a much much more finely detailed interior, for example. Right. And, uh, and, and we don't know where Apple's going to be coming in price-wise, but they're not the kind of company that are just going to sit back and say, oh, that handles that door handle's good enough. Right. And right. so it'll be interesting to see how they prioritize all these design decisions they have to make because they're going to be hundreds more for a car oh, than yeah. there are for any other product they have. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder how much it'll end up looking like a Bentley because I think that's what Johnny Ive mostly gets driven <laughs> yeah. around in. So it'll be curious to see that. All right. Well, thank you, Aaron. Appreciate sure. you uh, putting in all this work this week to, to research that for us. And we'll put links to a lot of stuff that Aaron's mentioned in the show notes. Um, so our final topic is, um, as we said, sort of both specifically the new business model for the Overcast podcasting app from Marco Arment, but more generally kind of what's going on with business models for iOS apps and for developers and and what might need to change there so let's just kind of review some of the the specifics of of the overcast case in particular so just a few days ago now marco arment who has a long history um he was uh, one of the original founders at tumblr he then made a lot of money um from that and then also created instapaper 
which was also sold, made more money from that. And then um, his most recent project is this podcasting app called Overcast, and it's on iOS and on the web as well. Um, and uh, about half our listeners on iOS actually use the Overcast app, so it's something that, that a lot of you will be familiar with. And he introduced a new business model for it with the second version of the app this week. Previously, uh, it was a free app to download, but there was a $5 in-app purchase to unlock several of the features within the app. And uh, he said uh, in announcing the second version that about 80% of users never paid that $5. So only about 20% of users were getting the full functionality in the app. And so as he released the second version, which had a number of technical tweaks to it, uh, one of which, by the way, um, made our podcast no longer work in Overcast. Um, and we had to make a change to how we deliver the episodes now. Um, and hopefully that's fixed now. It's fixed for the last two episodes and will be fixed going forward as well. Um, but along with the technical changes, made a change to the business model where the, the entire app is now free. Um, there is still an in-app purchase, though, and the in-app purchase is uh, for what he calls patronage. So if you decide you like the app, you can make a payment, and um, there are three tiers at which you can do that, but essentially it's a, a $0.99 cent or $1 monthly fee, and you can sign up for three months' worth, six months' worth, 12 months' worth of patronage, essentially, um, and that's the new model. So it's an entirely voluntary thing. You're basically saying, thank you very much for making this app. I find it useful and paying some money to back that up. So that's the new business model. Um, what was interesting was um, that um, two separate people came out and criticized this model. One of them is a guy called Michael Anderson, and I've had a hard time figuring out exactly what his background is, uh, but he has a blog called Building 20, uh, and he said it's basically predatory pricing, and predatory pricing is where... Um, a competitor in a market lowers its pricing to unsustainable levels in order to drive other people out of the market. Um, so he criticized it on that basis. Um, another blogger called um, Samantha Bielefeld also came out and made similar arguments. And a big part of their objection has been that Marco Arment is acting as if this business model of patronage is open to anybody and anybody can make money this way. And yet here's Marco Arment's both a millionaire, so he doesn't need the money as such, Secondly, he um, has a huge following. He's famous, essentially. He has a big following as a podcast. He's very well known. Every new project that he has, you know, people like John Gruber will cover it. So he's guaranteed to get lots of coverage, lots of usage on whatever he builds. And so he's unlike the typical indie iOS developer. And so the criticism was, yes, in theory, everybody could adopt the business model, but hardly anybody else would have the same success and be able to actually make a living through that business model. So an interesting discussion around that specifically. Um, but it also taps into the sort of broader discussion that's been going on for a while now about some of the things that the iOS app store is missing, um, upgrades, um, trials, things like that, that are available in other sort of software models and that make being an iOS app developer tough. And along with that, just, you know, this the prevalence of free apps within app purchases and then the prevalence of 99 cents as the sort of vast majority of apps are priced at that price point if they are paid. So all kinds of things tied up in this, but I'll, I'll stop talking and let Aaron sort of weigh in on this. Yeah, you know, I am, I, there's no doubt that the, that the app economy is broken for developers. Um, and I think Marco Arment's follow-up post on all this, where he kind of talks about the threat of big money coming into podcasts. I mean, he sees podcasts as getting much, much bigger than they are now. And that that's going to bring investors and investors are going to be doing the kind of predatory pricing to grab market share just in the same way that Armand's being accused of doing right now. And his, and his, you know, and his point was, is look, I'm, I'm positioning myself so I can keep doing this and still be in a place in this market so I just don't get squeezed out by big money, which he said happened to him in the case of Pocket. Because Instapaper was competing as Pocket, but Pocket raised a bunch of VC money. And with that, they were able to compete on, you know, in a way that he wasn't because they had cash to do it. Um, you know, features get copied uh, and innovations get copied. And so the way you compete is by essentially becoming the de facto software for whatever it is that is involved. And then, and then you figure out ways of making money through advertising or in-app purchases. And Marco's point was, is I'm not going to get big money for backing Overcast. And so um, so this is his way of sort of beating everybody to the punch with a, with a market grab kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, 
I could see why people would be annoyed at him for doing that because it's a pretty cynical perspective, but it's not uninformed cynicism. You know, I mean, it comes from the fact that it's happened to him once already and right. he's seen it happen with a bunch of other developers in other areas. Um, you know, and, and this is a problem because Apple benefits from having innovative indies do really cool things. You know, in the game space, it's maybe a little bit easier for developers because if you're like, if, like Monument Valley was a hugely successful game that was very unique, hard to copy. Um, but then you have the people who made the game threes um, and some guy in a day made a knockoff version called 2048 mm -hmm. that has had way more installs than threes ever had mm -hmm. because it was free. Right. And, you know, this push to free uh, is obviously really appealing to consumers, but hurts developers in a way that discourages them from wanting to develop if they don't have, uh, you know, the financial backing to own a market and then go after in-app purchases or advertising for revenue. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, with the app economy, I'm always... I'm always in two minds. On the one hand, you know, I, I recognize, you know, it's challenging to be an indie developer, but it's challenging to be a small business owner of any kind. And and I wonder, you know, to what extent should we expect the app store to have different rules and different dynamics from, you know, the world as a whole? And, and the reality is, you know, you're a small business owner, you come up with an idea that's interesting and somewhat unique and yet not patentable and therefore easily copyable by bigger companies that are well funded you're going to get squashed there too so should we really expect the app store to work any differently i guess is one question and um you know the other question is you know does that mean that people need to innovate in ways that are harder to copy um ultimately and is that even possible within the context of an app store um you know the app store is interesting because it's a great leveler so you, you can't pay for premium placement in the app store. Um, you know, you develop an app and either you do or don't get featured by Apple. And that's a pretty um, meritocratic process. You know, if it's any good, it will be featured. If it's not, it won't be. Um, on the other hand, if somebody's able to drive large amounts of traffic to a particular app um, on the store, it will rise in the charts and that will help it to be seen by more people. So having an existing large following or otherwise driving a lot of um, interest in, in whatever you're doing can help. Um, but yeah, I, I wonder, you know, should we expect, you know, this to work any differently than any other business? And is Apple really at fault for the fact that many of the same dynamics apply to almost any other sort of free market enterprise? Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I mean, it makes me think of uh, mom and pop retail versus, you know, Walmart in the grocery right. space or Barnes & Noble in the book mm -hmm. space, although that's a story that, I mean, <laughs> we're talking about the mom and pop bookshops that went out of business, but now it's Barnes & Noble that's struggling to stay in business because of ebooks and everything. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it, uh, it, it is a good point. I, I think there's a big difference between that example, though, and the App Store and in, in the way you were talking about discoverability. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm not, if I'm a local business, small business owner, my addressable market is is immediately around me, right? I mean, I can advertise right. to people with ads on buses or or coupon mailers or other things, whereas it doesn't work that way at all with the app economy. I mean, you put an app out and it is it has global reach immediately, mm -hmm. which means that's your addressable market, and that is a much more challenging marketing problem to solve than, uh, than trying to get people to come to my dry cleaners. So Right. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think about restaurants in a big city like New York. Like, there's no shortage of restaurants in New York. A new restaurant opens up, you know, it's facing an uphill battle to get people to come. And you have various ways to get people to come. You can try advertising. It might work if you're a certain kind of restaurant. You can, you know, invite critics to come and review your restaurant. There'll be people that write about, you know, new restaurants. And people are interested in that stuff, know where to look for that kind of thing. There'll be, you know, directories and things like that that you could appear in. I mean, eventually you'll be in Zagats or whatever. So, you know, it's like there are standard ways to get discovered. And I feel it's kind of similar with, with the App Store too, you know, like whether it's, you know, Mac Stories or 95 Mac or Loop Insight or John Gruber or whoever it might be, you know, there are people that feature this stuff. There are the charts and the featured stuff within the App Store itself. There are a whole variety of other places. There's word of mouth, which has always been, you know, significant for businesses in very competitive markets. So, I don't know, I guess... 
you know, what, what could you do differently? You know, search could perhaps be improved a little bit, but that's really tough because much of the time you don't know what you're searching for. And, you know, you just want to discover new stuff. And it's the same problem with the music. You, it's very hard to sort of say, search for new good stuff that I like, you know, it's, you have to be specific and it gets hard. And so that's where curation comes in. And, and Apple's doing more curation, not just in, in the app store, but also in music and, and presumably in video when they get to that point as well. But, um, yeah, I'm kind of on that point. I guess I'm less sympathetic. I'm much more sympathetic on on the side of people who are complaining about the lack of you know upgrades and free trials and things like that. I mean, these seem like obvious things that really would make developers' lives easier. Um, you know, Tweetbot just had to you know every time they upgrade, they basically create a new version of the app that's you can't upgrade from one to the next. You can't update your app and get the new version. You have to download a new app to you know remember what your settings were and set them up all over again. And in this case, you know there was a, I think a five dollar introductory price and then i think there was a clever workaround where you could get um to you it was an app bundle for tweetbot 3 and 4 such that if you already bought 3 you get the rest of the bundle i.e tweetbot 4 for a discount so really crazy workarounds for the fact that you can't just do upgrade pricing in the app store and the same thing applies on the mac too um and that stuff feels like so easy to fix for apple and i'm just kind of baffled to some extent that they haven't fixed some of that yet because it would really address some of the biggest concerns that developers have yeah no, that's great. Those are great thoughts. It, it, it's the story's not over. That's for sure. Yeah, no doubt. Okay, well, we'll, we'll wrap up with that and, and move on to our weekly pick. And it's my turn to do the weekly pick this week. Um, I'm going to talk about not one app, but several apps. Um, you may remember at the Apple September event, there were a variety of demos um, from different companies, and one of the companies was Adobe. And in the last couple of weeks, Adobe's released new apps or updates to apps for iOS. Um, and they're really quite fun, and um, they're free, which is one of the best things about them. But um, there's Photoshop Fix, there's a new Lightroom app, there's Photoshop Mix, and uh, Fix and Mix, I think, were both shown at the at the demo. Certainly, Fix was, and this is the one where uh, the guy on stage uh, adjusted a picture of a model's face so that she smiled a bit more than she had been smiling. And uh, it's the kind of demo where you think, sure, that looks great as a demo. I bet it's nowhere near that easy or it doesn't work anywhere near that. You know, I bet people look really weird if you try to use this feature or whatever. It, uh, but the Photoshop Fix app is really fun. And we've been using it a lot in our house, just, just having fun, taking pictures of each other and then adjusting smiles or making people's noses bigger or smaller or making their eyes further apart or whatever. But, you know, Adobe does this stuff super well. It's always been very expensive. Uh, on the desktop and yet on the mobile now they are um, making some of the stuff available for free and it's really quite fun photoshop mix is one where you can sort of you know the genericization of the word photoshop is you know you kind of put two things together potentially photoshop one thing into another picture that's what photoshop mix does um, lightroom's been around for quite a while on the desktop and on mobile as a, a photo editing app so improving the way your photos look and that's just been updated recently as well so I'm going to recommend as my weekly pick these new Adobe apps on iOS. Um, they'll be arriving on other platforms too, but uh, I've been having a lot of fun with them and I think you might too. All right, well, with that, we'll wrap up. Thank you for being with us. Um, we'll post links to a lot of the stuff that we've discussed on the uh, website at podcast.beyonddevices uh, in the show notes. As always, if you have any feedback or questions, please let us know. If you have any recommendations for questions that you'd like us to tackle in future questions of the week, let us know that as well. Um, I'm Jan Dawson. Again, Aaron Miller is my co-host. We are both on Twitter at Jan Dawson and Aaron Miller, respectively. And we look forward to being with you again next week. Thanks.